Tonight, how are you supposed to act when you check your portfolio when it's down? Or what are you supposed to do when it goes up? You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. I don't always do as I say. Yesterday, I actually checked my 401k balance. I try to ignore it at times when I'm pretty sure that it's down, and it was. That means and you're I had, human. That's okay. <laughs> I had that little, like, ugh, nauseous feeling in my stomach yeah. when I looked at it, and then I clicked out of it. But it's interesting. I was in um, Dallas for work last week talking uh, to someone that I met at a conference, and he was talking about the fact that he um, checks the markets and his portfolio several times a day. <laughs> okay, oh, poor that's thing. a little overboard. Yeah, I'm like, do you also pay a lot of money to a therapist? Because that would absolutely yeah. drive me insane. That's a lot. And we wouldn't say, listen, like, uh, to check it constantly and to know if you're up a tiny bit or down a tiny bit, that that could absolutely drive you crazy. But we but also it's know human nature. Yes, that's what people, you are going to check I mean, it. This, it's your money. And especially if you're near retirement or if you are retired, this is important. And, yeah. and, you know, it's one of the most powerful emotions. I mean, we're emotional as humans anyway. What triggers the strongest emotions? Well, um, losses of your financial stability. Yeah, that, that might yeah. that might be That's one a big of one. them. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I think it's important to, to realize a, a couple of things, Amy, that, you know, first of all, checking your account six times a day not healthy. I agree with you 100%. Yes. But you know, you, you at least want to be aware of what's going. It doesn't mean you have to do anything. There's a big, big difference in performance between um, paying attention and seeing where it is and paying attention, getting panicked and selling at the wrong times. And I, I think that's what we're really getting to is when things go down, you remember those times a lot more than when things go up. It, it just sticks in your head that, mm -hmm. oh, I wish I had what I had before the drop. And, and that's, a, that's a strong emotion. Loss aversion, right? I mean, yes, you yeah. remember those losses. You have to understand, though, the second that you start putting money into that 401k, that IRA, that brokerage fund, whatever, with this, the, the minute you start investing, you are taking on some risk. There is volatility in the market. There will always be volatility in the market. In fact, on average, market fluctuates about 15% every year, right? Between that, the bottom that, and I the think top. You need, you need to make that point again because I don't yes. think people realize that that's a normal downturn, even in good years. 15% is the average drop within any one year. So that's the cost of admission, folks. I, yeah. I mean, if you're going to be invested in the stock, in, in the stock market, and, and you know, you should be because that's at least for some of your money, because that's the way you beat inflation. Just acknowledge that there are going to be times where, on average, you may very well have seen a 15% loss that year. That's that's a big deal. So what do you do, right? I mean, these these vol this volatility is part yeah. of it. And if you are someone who, when you check it, kind of has this knee-jerk reaction that you need to do something... I think you have to figure out a way to talk yourself off of that ledge or find an advisor or someone that you can work with that can remind you, hey, this is your long-term plan. What we have seen far more often than not is someone who has that knee-jerk reaction. Oh my gosh, my investments are down 10%. I'm yeah. going to do this. I'm going to put it in cash. I'm going to switch to some alternative investment. I'm going to do something else. I'll take it out. Maybe I'll put it back in. None of those things ever pan out better than just leaving it in the market and letting it ride. Yeah. And if, if you don't believe us, 
Get out your laptop and Google market history. Look at the S&P 500 over the past 100 yeah. years, right? It goes down in tiny little pieces, but overall, the trajectory is up and to the right, which is, for most of us, exactly what we want our investments to be doing. Yeah, let, let me go over some hard numbers instead of just saying, don't do anything, don't worry about it. Uh, over the past 10 years, and you don't want to be 100% stock, but we got to go off of something. So if you look at the Standard & Poor's 500, the 500 biggest U.S. companies over the last 10 years, the S&P 500 has averaged 12.4% annual return. Okay, but let's go back 20 years because, hey, hey, Steve, that doesn't include, uh, you know, 08 and 09. All right, well, 20 years, yeah, you're right, it is less. It's only 9.7%. Mm. Well, how about the last 30 years? Because 2000, 99, 2000, and 01 were brutal years. Okay, 9.9% average return per year. So let's just call it 10%. Yeah. So if I talk, and this is 40 years of experience, I can sum it up into two, ru two rules for, for making money in the long run. Rule number one, if you buy into, okay, you're going to average 10% in the stock market, all you have to do to average 10% is leave it alone. Well, then rule number two is, Okay, the four most dangerous words are this time it's different. You're going to mm -hmm. say that to yourself 100 times during the course of your life. Revert back to rule number one. I, I, just leave it alone. Leave it alone. I know we've got different things going on in our lives, but if you want to get a halfway decent return on your money, please don't panic. It's the most powerful emotion. Don't panic and sell at the wrong times because it's only a loss when you sell. All you need to do is leave it alone, and then it's just a downturn, not a loss. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Strovak. As we're talking about practical things you can do when you check that portfolio and it's down, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down, but we're talking about the down part of it right now because I do think that's probably the one that you have the largest emotional reaction to. And Steve, you just mentioned those four words that you hate, right? This time, yeah. it's different. Yeah. And I want to bring up the pandemic as an example of that because it really was. This well, time, it's different. different. We have yeah. never had a global pandemic before in our lifetime where the entire economy was shut down. I mean, there was there was nothing to say, oh, when this happened in 1980 or 1965, right. here's here's how this went. We didn't know. And markets were in a free fall that February right. and that March. And, and I remember there was a buzz in the Allworth offices like nothing I've ever seen before. Right. I mean, no one could even use the restroom at that point because there were so many clients calling in saying, I need to go to cash. I need to go to cash. I need to go to cash. Right. And, and it was our job to try to say, listen, we, we don't know what's going to happen here, but the only history that we have is that the market has recovered 100% of the time. Well, for the few people who we just couldn't talk out of that fear-based decision-making, they lost out. I mean, who would yep. have thought that yep. the market was going to start recovering while the pandemic was going to rage on with no answers for months and months after that? And, and, and you know, I, I said this time, yeah, that was different. But you know what? It's always something different. It might be a war that wasn't expected. Russia invading the Ukraine, the government shutting down, a, a near collapse of the financial system like in 08 and 09. I, I, I mean, yeah, these are all different, but they're not. It's it's all kind of the same, an unexpected event that doesn't last for the rest of your life. And and, and I think that's the key because markets always recover. I, I mean, you said you just said there we're batting a thousand on recoveries. Yeah, yeah we are. And, and that's not going to change. So, you know, when there's a downturn, big emotion, try not to do anything um, and, and you'll be fine. Let's talk about 
the good stuff, though, the upturns, because that's a pretty strong emotion in a different way. When things are going great, you think they're going to keep going great and prices are going to go to the moon. They don't do that either. My favorite example of this is is one of our investors that we work with, who's probably now one of the most famous ones because I love this jewelry. 80, late 80s, pushing 90. It had been a time when the market was just going gangbusters. He calls us up at Allworth and he says, put me 100% in stock. Yeah. I just can't lose right now. And there's, there's, you can get greedy at a time when you check your portfolio and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm doing really well. And, yeah. you know, you can't necessarily think that you're getting smarter because the market is, you know, like, I just can do no wrong and I'm going to buy this and I'm going to do that. No, no, no. Your, your long-term plan is your long-term plan. Fear and greed have a huge impact on those. And if you can just divorce those emotions from the way that you think about your money and in that long-term financial plan, you're going to be far better off. I, I'll be honest with you. I get more nervous when things are going good than when <laughs> things are going bad. Because I know when things are going bad, yeah, they don't go down to zero. They always recover. I, They're always you know, I, I wish it, Yeah, I wish it would go back up You know, yesterday, but I don't get nervous when things are down. When things are good and things are going up, I get nervous because I know, you know things go down up more than they should, things go down more than they should. And when they're up more than they should, you don't know when it's going to end and you know it's going to end at, at, at some point. Well, this is a time where maybe you should do something. And by doing something, I don't mean lock in your gains, go to cash and wait for the next dip. No, no, that that's a losing proposition. But what you can do is rebalance yeah. because you're probably not 100% stock. Uh, you, you know, most people aren't and shouldn't be 100% stock. But you know what? If you are 60% stock and 40% bonds, well, after a big upswing, you might unintentionally be 70% stock and 30% bonds. And you know what? If you leave that alone, eventually you'll be 75, 80% stock. And now you're carrying more risk in stocks than you initially wanted to when you were 60%. Rebalancing, and I don't think you have to do it that often, maybe once a year. Yeah. But when things are good, it's a great time to rebalance, which just means take the excess off the table. Leave the house money there and, and redistribute so you're back to 60, 40 or whatever your initial uh, allocation was. And, and that's a really smart way of not just getting higher risk than you intended to, but also without timing the market, just keeping your risk within your comfort zone. I like that you're talking about what you can do, right? Because often if your account is way up or way down, there's really nothing that you can do to control that. I mean, it's it's done by yeah. the markets. So what you can do is control what you can control. So when you figure out what that proper allocation is, right, for your age, for your risk level, for when you plan on retiring, for how much money you've saved, for all of those things, kind of keeping within that, that balance uh, is great. And then also just making sure you don't take on more risk. And I think when yeah. things are going well, that's when people start to say, what else is out there? Tech stocks. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I think about during the pandemic when everyone was going gangbusters on Zoom and Peloton, right? What could possibly go wrong? Everyone has a Peloton <laughs> bike that's being shipped to their house right now. And then there was some bad PR and then people started getting back out there and then things weren't looking as good for Peloton, right? They yeah. had mass layoffs. And so I think that you can easily, when things are going good, say, well, I can't imagine what could possibly go wrong with this company, with this market, with this economy. But you never know what's coming around the corner. And so we have this kind of simply money rule that we would say, hey, if you can stick to this, you're going to be far better off. And that's no more than 10% of your entire portfolio in individual stocks. And I'm not talking 10% Peloton, 10% in Zoom yeah, or right, whatever it right. is combined individual yeah. stocks, 10%. That's going to um, reduce your risk in times when times are down 
a lot, a lot better sleep. Yeah, diversification is a key. Yes. And also, you know, get, get a financial plan drawn up. Do it yourself. Hire a professional. But that keeps you on the straight and narrow of, okay, what are my average returns? Will I run out of money or not? And should keep you from reacting drastically to, you know, whatever the latest good or bad news is in the market. Here's your all worth advice. If you have a long-term financial plan that takes into account your risk tolerance, your time horizon, history shows you'll often reap the rewards by mostly doing nothing. Coming up next, how to know when it's time to fire your financial advisor. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. If you miss our show one night, you don't have to miss a thing that we talk about. We've got a daily podcast for you. Just search Simply Money right there on the iHeart app or wherever you turn to to get your podcast. Coming up at 643, we're playing a little fact or fiction, what you need to know when it comes to planning for your retirement. You know, we talk about money on here and we talk about the conversations between you and your spouse and you and your children and all of those. But, but there's also a very another very important relationship when it comes to your money, and that's if you work with an advisor. It's critically important, I would say, uh, that you find someone that's a good match for you and, and not everyone is going to be. No. And, you know, I keep in mind also your advisor is kind of interviewing you. Because mm-hmm. it, this is something that um, it's a relationship. It, work, it goes both ways. It, it has to work both ways. And and I'll tell you what. Uh, one of the biggest keys on whether or not you've got a good relationship with your advisor is who's doing all the talking during the meeting. If the advisor is, if you're talking, you can't really listen. And I think a good relationship involves a lot of listening on the part of the advisor. Because otherwise, how are they going to know what your dreams and goals are? Because their job is to try to provide you the financial means to attain them. Well, if they don't, if they're telling you what's important, um, it's not really a good relationship. I'm going to say another, a couple of other things about this too. When I was in my 20s, when we had first, when I had first gotten married, um, we went in to meet with someone. We had just moved back to the Cincinnati area. It was someone who my dad had been working with for years. My family had been working with for years, and we went in and we sat down. He did not look at me the entire time. He didn't talk to Just me the entire to the time. Husband. He talked to the husband. Mistake. Yes. Yeah. And I was thinking, um, hello. I am right here, and I am just as involved, yeah. of course, in these money-making decisions as he is, and, and I was so upset by it. Uh, and, and then also, we ended up opening a 529 uh, for our daughter at that time, so college mm-hmm. savings, uh, and, and that was the only thing that we ended up doing, we ended up moving all of our money somewhere else. But... It was just a couple of months ago. I was out for a run in my neighborhood, and I got a call from this number uh, that kind of looked like it was a number that I knew. And I, 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 I answered it, and it was yeah. that advisor saying, "Hey, haven't heard from you in a few. Literally, it's been over <laughs> decades. You have wow. this five twenty nine with us. Why don't you come in and let me?" And I'm thinking, "Oh my goodness, you have no idea, yeah. right?" So yeah. you have to make sure that there is an ongoing relationship. It's not transactional. They're not selling you a product. They're not selling your home or helping you buy a home. This is, hey, we're gonna co- we're gonna come together. We're gonna come up with a long term financial plan for you, and then we're both gonna meet. Up, I would say once a year um, and talk through yeah, this. Are you keeping on the plan? Yeah, at, at least. And I, I'm going to add another one because it, this is something that really evolved. I've done this for over 40 years and, and really for the last, I'd say, 20 to 30 years, 
the term fiduciary has become more and more important. It's, I'll give you the, the real quick answer to what fiduciary means. It means that advisor is working in your best interest, not just ethically, but from a legal standpoint. Uh, and that's tough to do if you're you know, dealing with commissions. I, I, I just don't like commissions because to me, it's a biased uh, relationship when somebody makes a big chunk of money up front when you decide to invest money in, in whatever it is you decide to invest in. Um, fiduciary is a really important part of a relationship. And, and um, the, the two key designations that you should be aware of are CFP, Certified Financial Planner, and CHFC, Chartered Financial Consultant. Um, you're dealing with a fiduciary when you deal with those. Now, I'm not saying other uh, designations aren't going to work in your best interest, but you know up front that those are two where they they do. I, I mean, that just comes with a designation. Um, it, it's a whole different ballgame when that advisor is on your side of the table and working in your best interest as opposed to the other side of the table trying to convince you to buy something, in most cases, that charges a commission. Really important. And I think also when your conversations with an advisor turn to things like tax planning or yeah. estate planning and they say, oh, I don't know, just talk to a CPA, just talk to an estate planning attorney, right? Well, they may not be the absolute expert in those things. They should definitely should have some know. Broad knowledge, though. Yeah, yeah, they should, yeah, know how those components kind of fit into your overall plan. And they're kind of the ones that should, you know, kind of be the, the main point of contact. And okay, maybe you want to talk to this person, but here's where I think this could go. Uh, so I think they're also part of that larger conversation because they'll probably have the most holistic view of your financial picture of any other professional that you're working with. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Amy Wagner, and we're talking about not just what to look for when you hire an advisor, but what to consider when you're considering firing an advisor. And, and you know, one of the things, you know, fees are important. They, they are. No matter how much somebody tries to, you know, make it a, a minor part of the relationship, um, you're always going to think as the consumer, no, I, I need to know what I'm paying. I, I always look at what I'm paying before I do, before I hire anybody or, or contract with anybody for any reason. And there are some advisors that just try to beat around the bush and say, no, no, the company pays me. No, it doesn't come out of your pocket directly. No, it's not a, just, how about a number? How about 1%, one and a half percent? You know, if you're hiring a fiduciary, one, one and a half percent is pretty much the game plan for one and a half percent. Yeah, you should get financial planning and a whole bunch of other services thrown in. You know, if it's less than 1%, well, I, I wonder, you know, what, what are they really doing unless you've got a couple of million dollars when the fees are naturally going to come down? But, you know, to get answers like, well, it, it's a commission, you pay us up front and, and you know, it's around. No, I, I would, I would want to know if I'm buying a particular commission product, whether it's an annuity or a front load mutual fund, 5%, 6%, what's the surrender charge? Five years, six years, seven years. How much do you actually make? What goes to you? What's the actual dollar amount? Those are permissible questions. They're okay to ask. You should ask. And if there's yes. tap dancing or any lack of transparency, if you're just not getting a good vibe from that person that they are not being just completely transparent with you, I say you fire them or you walk out the door if you have not hired them yet. You know, a fee-based plan uh, where the better you do, the better they do, right? It just aligns your interest. And yes, the fiduciary is all there. They're legally obligated to do the best thing possible for you. And I've seen far too many people just chasing returns. And so yeah. they jump around, they jump 
jump around from advisor to advisor. I think, you know, I heard this advisor can give me this. That's not a relationship. And that's not the best way to look at your financial plan over the long term. Here's the all worth advice. When handing over your life savings to a financial professional to work with you, make sure they're the right match for you on every level. Coming up next, we're talking about asking for a raise, but maybe they're not asking the person that you might think. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. We talk all the time about how important it is to have open lines of communication with your spouse when it comes to money, right? Everyone should be on the same page. What happens if one of you maybe was on the same page and now they suddenly are not? Joining us tonight, our good friend Al Riddick from Game Time Budgeting. Al, I love how open you are about the conversations that take place between you and your wife and talking about money. And recently you had one that, well, we talked to you that day and I can tell you, it threw you off your, it threw you off your A game. <laughs> you weren't expecting it. Not, not at all. Not at all. So, so, Amy, since you already set it up, can I go ahead and explain what yes, we're talking about Yes, please explain. <laughs> so, uh, recently, my wife came to me and she basically said, I would like a raise in my allowance. So, just to give you a little bit of a backstory, we've been married about 21 years. And during that time, or actually before we even got married, we agreed that we would pay ourselves an allowance which would basically be fun money. So each individual, we could do whatever we wanted to do with this money and your spouse could not say one word. So I get a, a, a message from my wife one day stating that she wanted a raise in her allowance. And not only did she <laughs> say, I want a raise, she had a dollar amount in mind. So oh. as you can imagine, Amy and Steve, I crunched the numbers and discovered that her request was actually a 60% increase in her allowance. <laughs> so when okay. I picked myself up off the floor, I was like, oh man, that's a lot of money, you know? Well, and, and I mentioned this, but we were talking to you the day that this, this whole conversation had gone down and you were still in a little shock about it, but I said, please, can we talk about this at some point? Because I think this is a normal give and take and not everyone looks at the money the same way that you guys do and you're so responsible about it and each dollar that goes out of your house has as a job, so it's all assigned. So you call it an allowance, but it's kind of just your fun money for both of you. Um, but let me ask you this, Al. You said you've been married for 21 years and you've had this agreement in place that whole time. How many raises have you given yourselves over the course of that 21 years? So this is the funny part. <laughs> for myself, Amy, I have had zero raises. <laughs> you believe it i know right but think about it well i won't tell you how much money it is but to me it's always been a lot of money right (laughs) because i'm such a low maintenance guy and for the things that i enjoy they don't really cost a lot of money so it's not a big deal to me and my wife on the other hand can you believe out of 21 years of marriage she only requested a raise one time and it was 10%. And of course, I was like, uh, I don't care if it'll make you happy. Let's do it. So that's <laughs> the backstory there. Okay, so how'd this conversation go? So with this conversation, um, 
if my memory is correct, <laughs> of course, I started crunching some numbers because I always want to know how financial decisions are going to impact cash flow. So we crunched some numbers and then I discovered, well, I, I guess you could say I discovered that um, we could eat this amount of money and it really wouldn't be a big deal. But I thought it would be intriguing if I posed another question to my wife. So I was like, you know what? Uh, I'm totally cool with the raise. You know, it's not really going to impact our lifestyle that much, if at all. I said, however, would you prefer to just have an increase in your monthly allowance or would you rather have a one-time payout that would be equal to the same amount of money that you would get in your raise through <laughs> December of 2024, Amy? And uh. she said, you know what? That's a lot of money. She says, so I don't want it all at once because I might spend it. So she opted for the monthly increase. And I have to tell you, too, that was the sexiest answer I could ever hear because that reaffirmed <laughs> for me how my wife can practice delayed gratification. So, of mm. course, I got excited. <laughs> I, I, you have a unique relationship <laughs> yes. with each other. I'm just thinking about <laughs> if my wife came to me and said that and I told her, no, how about this? I'm not sure I'd be out of the hospital yet. But You'd be in the doghouse <laughs> in the backyard. At, 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 at any point, did you ever, like, compare her request to what the cost of a divorce lawyer and, no. and half of your net worth would be? Did that ever go through your mind? You know, I, I did not, Steve, but I kind of got the feeling because when I thought about it, I was like, man, we've been married 21 years. Yeah. She's only requested a raise one yeah. time. And of course, when you look at inflation, cost of living and things of that nature, the amount of money, even though it's still a lot in my mind, when you think about it over 21 years, it's not that big of a deal. Right. Plus, right. I forgot to throw in an extra little caveat here for you, too. So my wife also just got a raise. So that made the decision even easier. Oh. <laughs> you know, I also want to talk about this because, you know, a lot of people, their relationships and the, the way that they handle money isn't exactly the same way that, that you and your wife do. So your wife coming to you asking for a raise sounds just a little crazy. But you guys run your home and your cash flow like a business, right? And so Definitely. in a business type situation, you would have two partners coming together. Maybe one of them is saying, I think I should be paid more. Uh, and, and then that's a conversation that takes place. And so I just want to be clear, right? Is, is that kind of how you and your wife think about it? You're, you're running a business in your but household? That is definitely how we think about it. And just to make one small correction, when my wife came to me, it wasn't as though she was asking me for a raise. It's more of <laughs> this is a topic that I think we need to discuss. You know they what need I mean? to put because, this on the table. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Let's put this on the table. And obviously, the way that my mind works, I'm crunching the numbers. I'm looking at data and things of that nature. And because we calculated that we could absorb this without really impacting any of our goals so far as saving for retirement, vacation account, philanthropy, and things of that nature. We always, as a team, make sure that we crunch the numbers and then make the decision wherein I'm assuming some people might get a little bit emotional about a mm -hmm. request like that without looking at the numbers and then you just blurt out an answer. But to me, I believe that the numbers should help you make a quality financial decision. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does, and I, I think that is so different than I, I, I'm thinking of a woman that that I uh, that I know who's she has no idea how much her husband makes, and he gives her an allowance, and and it literally is an allowance. This is how much you get per month. You're not in that situation. This is a partnership, and the two of you are very open about money coming in, money going out, and that's a healthy relationship. Communication is key on on emotional subject subjects like this. Oh, definitely. And just to give you another example, Steve, recently, uh, my wife, she called me and she was like, hey, I think I found a great vacation for us during uh, the Christmas holiday. And then my first question was, how much does it cost? And you didn't even ask gave, where it was? Exactly. I didn't even ask. And then she's like, she's like, it's a really nice resort. I think you would love it. And because obviously I've been married for 21 years. I know her taste when it comes to selecting a resort. So I was like, book it. And I didn't find out where I was going until later that night. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's great. But, but the cool part is we already had the money in our vacation account. So yeah. it was really an easy decision. Al, I love how transparent you are with how your home runs, how your marriage and your relationship runs. Glad that you guys were able to come to a consensus and everyone got a raise. We learned a lot from you. You've been listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. If you have a financial issue or just a question that's kind of burning in the back of your mind, there's a red button you can click on while you're listening to the show. It's right there on the iHeart app. Record your question. It's coming straight to us. We would love to help you figure it out. Coming up, we're going to help you change the way you think about saving. Yes, it might just be a little mindset shift that you need there. We're going to play now Retirement Factor Fiction. And, you know, we like to have fun with this. We like to say it's a game, but there's a very serious reason why we do this. The more people that we talk to, the more articles that we read, the more media that we consume, we realize there are so many myths out there oh, about no money, about retirement. And this is just our way of, like, throwing some out there and then busting them, giving you the truth of the matter so that you actually have the best concept of what's best for you moving forward. Um, uh, and we're all over the place with these, so keep up with us. Here's the first one, Sprovac. Fact or fiction, if you inherit <laughs> a stock portfolio that has achieved significant gains, you, if they are the person who's the heir, will not have to pay taxes on the gains. Believe it or not, that's a fact, but I'm going to say with an asterisk. Because the reason I, I, I say with an asterisk, there's a big tax advantage to inheriting stock. And, and locally, you know, we talk about Procter & Gamble a lot. Well, your your parents or grandparents may, may have had, you know, shares that they paid next to nothing for decades ago. And when they passed away, you inherited it through the probate system, through, through, through a will. And guess what? Your grandparents didn't have to pay tax because they passed away without selling the stock. Well, that means you have to write. No, it's called a stepped-up cost basis and the only reason you may have to pay a little bit of tax is from the date of their death, if it went up in price before you had a chance to sell it. Yeah, that little tiny bit, you, you'll you be responsible for paying a gain. It may have gone down and, and you actually have a loss. But the bottom line is, yeah, that's a huge tax break when you inherit highly appreciated stock. Fact. 
I mean, we're in Cincinnati. There's a lot of people who have gotten uh, Procter no & question. Gamble stock, right? And if that's been in your family and maybe your parents, your grandparents bought it and then they willed it to you and you got it, think about the fact if you had to, if you were going to sell that stock at some point and had to pay what they, the difference between what they paid for it. So this stepped up basis yeah, is a big huge deal. advantage tax-wise. All right. I got one for you. Fact okay. or fiction, Amy? Medicare will cover most of your nursing home or assisted living costs. Fiction. Yeah, at her. This is a huge yeah. one because I, you know, I know for so many people, it's like you work all these years. Most of us have health care coverage through our our work health insurance plans, and then it's like, oh, well, I get to sixty five, and I don't have to worry about it anymore because, well, there's Medicare. Well, Medicare only covers certain things. Hospital stays. There's a lot that's not covered. So then you need to figure out, okay, dental and vision and prescription coverage. And yeah. also, yes, it's, it does not cover if something happens to you and you have a long-term care situation that needs to be taken care of. This is why we would say you need to plan for it, whether long-term care insurance is a policy, self-insuring is, is an option. And I was actually just talking to our insurance expert, Jody. Last week, and she was saying, like, this is a, a significantly important conversation that you need to have and think through. And, and don't get to 65 and think Medicare's got me covered because it doesn't. No, Here's it doesn't. And, and I've got a family member that's going through this decision right right now. And, yeah, there's uh, up to 100 days covered for recovery from a condition, rehab. But that's it. At best, 100 days of basically help coming out of a bad situation, mm -hmm. a long-term care no, not at all. Here's one for you, and I want, I'm interested to hear what you say. Fact yeah. or fiction, if you've got a choice, you're better off investing in an IRA than a Roth IRA. I, I, I'm going to say fact kind of on that. You know, the younger you are, the more of a fact it is because, man, a Roth IRA. And, and you know as well as I do, Amy, you know, getting tax-free distributions is a lot better than taxable distributions. And people that were super efficient and saved up a ton of money in their 401k over their lives, um, yeah, at some point you're going to live off of that money. And if it was a traditional IRA or traditional 401k, that's a taxable distribution. So to get, you know, 30000 a year, you got to take out thirty-five or 40000 to account for the taxes. A Roth IRA, if you're over 59 and a half and uh, it's been in there more than five years, in most, and well, it should be tax-free uh, on the distribution. Tax-free is a good thing. And that's why I say the longer it's in there, the better off you are. Because if you do a Roth in your 30s and, and that builds up to be a big number by the time you retire, it's awesome. Even though it is after tax when you put the money in. I love it. I actually love yeah. the flexibility of a Roth. And, and to your point, Steve, so many people have money in a traditional 401k. You're looking at that balance. Say there's a million dollars in there and you're thinking, oh, I'm set, right? I've got a million dollars. Okay. Well, when you go to take that money out, you have to pay the piper. With uh, with Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks, you've already paid the taxes on them. You've locked in today's tax rate, not knowing maybe where your, your taxes are going to be in the future. So I think this is a really smart strategy. Here's another important one I want to cover fact or fiction, you want to get a refund when you file your taxes each year. Everyone talks about how much money they're getting back. Should they be bragging? And fiction. No, why would you <laughs> give the government money? And in, I mean, the bigger the refund, the more money you gave them that you're not earning interest on. You know, it's a tax-free loan to the government. Please try to work it as close to zero as possible. If you got to pay a couple of bucks or get a couple back uh, bucks back, that's plenty. Big refunds. No, I, force yourself to save instead of doing it that way.
please understand, a tax refund is not new money to you. It's just the government re-gifting the money that you gave to Your them to hold all year. It makes zero sense to try to get a huge refund. Coming up next, we've got a new way for you to look at saving. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sproback. When you hear these words, saving money, do you kind of get hives? Are you like, oh, it also leads to that horrible B word called a (laughs) budget, and I hate doing that. And as much as I know I should be saving money, you know, inflation's high right now, and it's just hard to... We just think maybe if you kind of rephrase, reframe the way that you think about saving, it might help you a little bit. Yeah. And how about let's instead of saving, let's, let's look at the word profit. I, You know, I, I love talking to Al Riddick because he thinks of his money as a business. You yes. know, th- this is this is the cash flow coming in. This is the cost of life. And and let's build in a profit margin. And that's the way he saves money. And I love that concept because every corporation in the world is looking at, you know, if you save the pennies, the dollars take care of themselves. And the more money left over is the profit for the company and is the profit for you and your family. So yeah, instead of saying, okay, what's left over? How about Let's try to figure out what our average profit per month is going to be and how do we increase profits. I love the word profit, but it's just yeah. a positive thing. There's progress it in it. it. It signifies a gain. Uh, and I think, you know, money is a tool. And you have always made an excellent point of making, you know, it's a tool that gets you to be able to do the things that you want to enjoy do. life. But I also think that you either control your money or your money controls you. And there's so many people who get themselves in these horrible debt spirals and they can't figure out how to get their heads above the water. And their money is controlling them. But when you start to look at your the money that's flowing into your household and flowing back out as a business, it helps you take the emotion out of that spending and say, okay, what's the best thing? How do we drive the highest profit out of this? And that answer is a decision that you have as far as, okay, what's next with that money? Yeah. So if you say, I I, want to say, I I want a profit of $500 this month. Your follow-up is, how do I get there? Yes. You know, what do I need to do to have that $500. And it doesn't mean penny pension like crazy, but you've got to obviously pay attention to where the money goes. I'll give you a great example. I I had a recall on my car and it was going to replace certain parts of of the exhaust system. Um, And and I said, you know what? This is a pain. I've got to find all these papers. I've got to put this this application together. And then I realized, wait a second, this is about $1,800 worth of repairs. I'll spend two hours doing that, $900 an hour. Yeah, they can hire me for 900 bucks an hour. So I did it and, and it worked out great. Think of money in terms of profit. Yeah, I think if you just develop that mindset of this is a business, right? It takes the yep. emotion out of it, and it's going to help you get ahead much further, much more quickly. Hey, thanks for listening tonight. You've been listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial here on 55KRC, the talk station.